podcast. My file name tells me that this is PillPod76. Happy Friday. It's good Friday. It's a good Friday because uh, God is dead. But we only have two days to ourselves, you know? Yeah, that's very true. I- I'm more excited for chocolate and bunny rabbits. Oh, my fire alarm's going off. We're going to have to wait oh. a second. Um, when it goes when it goes off, it goes off like in the whole building. So it's someone downstairs. Someone set off their smoke alarm. Speaking of cybernetic <laughs> systems. Speaking of cybernetic systems. Anyway, why don't we've you've heard only two voices thus far? We are a reduced cast today because the libs are off uh, interviewing other libs. Yeah, and. I I know they're hearing this, and we don't mean libs disparagingly. We mean them as pals. But we're actually going to go into the term lib a little bit today because everyone is a lib whether you decide to adopt the moniker or not. And I know there's some some Marxio, Anarcho, etc.-ists that are going to be upset by that, but I don't make the rules. Yeah. It's the system. It's the system. Man, we sound... We're going to sound like... uh, like 19 year olds, 19 year old stoners. That's just like, it's all the system, man. You can't get out of it. Yeah. This um, is like 70s counterculture hippie language. <laughs> it will be, but uh, it will sound like that, but it also will not be that. <laughs> it'll sound like that. And we are picking up on some content that we did. Like, I don't even know if it was last year or the year before. Oh, this was, uh, I think the last time was November 2020. We, we did our, our second episode on uh, autopoiesis and cybernetics and systems theory. So I, th- I, think, <laughs> I think there's been some interest in us picking this topic back up ever since. So uh, better late than never. Yeah, I've had some messages from patrons leaving who are like, if you're not going to cover cybernetics and systems theory anymore, then I'm going to leave. And they, true to their word, did. So <laughs> fucking out of here. <laughs> if this Good brings you back. Um, anyway, when we're talking to uh, Matt and Victor, our lib, our lib buddies, um, towards whom we hold no ill will. However, when we're talking to them, the, the situation kind of determines that there's a certain context or code. And we have to make theoretical assumptions in order to communicate with them, as you do when you're talking to anybody. Um, including the the insane claim that humans exist. We just have to accept that as given in order to have a conversation. <laughs> um, now that they're not here, we can dispense with this immoral and factually inaccurate claim that humans exist. And we're going to take this slow. We've, you've seen this is called volume one. Um, we're just going to, we're going to get into some systems theory and as critical theory, and I don't think you and I have done like an actual post-humanism breakdown, have we? Is that is that right? It feels like we've talked about it, but never done an episode on it. I feel like we've done a lot of things that are maybe like post-human adjacent, uh, like the cybernetics and systems theory stuff. Um, but I don't think we've had a chance to broach this topic because, um, you know, we the, the four of us are like uh, four big circles and there's overlaps between it. Um, but it's very difficult to find an overlap that allows us to explore post-humanism because liberalism and post-humanism seem to be quite opposed to one another. Actually, I think there'll be some ways in which they're actually continuous and join up, especially when we talk about 
little bit about transhumanism, I think. Um, but we'll uh, we'll get into all of that. And and another thing I was just saying before we start recording is that you know posthumanism is a broader kind of critical theory option. If you're if you're shopping around for your critical theory options and you you know you you see Marxism, you see critical liberalism, you see posthumanism. These are all ginormous umbrella terms of loads of different views and i think our systems theory and cybernetics fits most at home in a post-humanist kind of framework at least some versions of it that are out there and lumen is the the guy that we're mostly going to be referring to in terms of systems theory that has a lot to say about marx but it's not even i guess you wouldn't call it critical he just says like the assumptions that are being made here are not assumptions that i'm going to make but way before we get into that, um, I just wanted to start by, okay, so here's here's the story, folks. I don't know why I said folks. I've never used that word before in my life. Anyway, here's <laughs> the story, listeners. We were supposed to do a reading. Um, what's the book, Eric? Uh, so I've got one here called Philosophical Posthumanism, uh, written by Francesca Ferrando. So we were supposed to read this book, and I was about to read it until about an hour and a half ago. I had an anxiety attack, not from the book, <laughs> an anxiety attack. I was chilling, reading my Stiegler, and I don't think that caused it either. So I wouldn't be admitting this on air if it weren't topical, and it is topical. And I also wouldn't be admitting it if there was a cause, or at least a conscious cause, to this anxiety attack, because... You know, people who who have anxiety attacks, I'm sure, is probably 50% of our listener base. Um, but you know, there's usually, it's usually an overreaction to something. Like something happens that you're worried about or you're, you, I don't know, what do people have anxiety attacks over? Tests, maybe? Presentations, whatever <laughs> yeah. it is. Exam times now, yeah, this is high time for all sorts of attacks. So this one had no cause that I'm aware of. Um, I just started, heart rate goes up, breathing really fast, uh, tried to take a cold shower, turn it off, tried to like lay down and sleep and start counting objects in the room to stop it. It wasn't going away. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because Lumen believes that what we call the human being is actually a misnomer for three different systems. And one of those is the biological slash neurological. So the anxiety attack is a feedback loop. It's a positive feedback loop where whatever aspects of your brain, I think it's like your hypothalamus, is that is that right? Something like that? I've never I've never researched it because I am uh I'm thankfully not subject to anxiety attacks, but Whatever I, does whatever does the fight flight or f flight thing. Oh yeah, you're sort of a lizard lizard brain parts. <laughs> so it's supposed to moderate um, your the way your brain and body functions and make it so this does not happen. And then every once in a while it it fucks up. So it fucked up, and my brain my body thought I was I don't know running from a from a wolf, <laughs> and uh, decided to panic. For no, and again, I want to stress, I'm not worried about anything. I was chilling. The week's coming to a close. Got some, got some plans this weekend. 
nothing set this off. And often there is something that you can point to to set it off. Um, but this shows for like a systems theorist that there is this disjunct. And of course, systems theory is not the only thing to say this, like uh, all of psychoanalysis assumes that this is the case. But these are separate systems that are coupled, but they are not the same system. Yeah, they don't, they don't communicate with each other in, in, in the way that we would imagine that they do. But yeah, you can picture the mind even as divided between the conscious and unconscious parts. And even the unconscious parts probably have subsystems, just like the biological parts do, right? We have our, our immune system, our circulatory system, our skeletal muscular systems, all those different. I think there's about seven of them. All those systems are all self-enclosed and they, they, they communicate with each other. Okay, you could say that in a colloquial sense, but if you want to use the term communication in the technical sense, then they do not communicate with each other directly. Yeah, we're going to be saying a lot of things that sound extremely alien, but they're kind of particular uh, to this discourse. But like, like, there are no humans in society. Yeah. In fact, there are, there are no humans at all. And that's what what social our, our social systems are 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 not a made up of people. A very counterintuitive claim. Um, yeah, and I don't I don't really like discipling my relation to most theorists. As anyone familiar with my content will probably know, I like assembling these mosaics of thought, following different lines, and kind of making making pictures, making aesthetic coherences out of them. And usually I like some bit and don't like some bit and uh, use the parts I like and not the parts I don't. Now, Lumen, underrated, I think he's probably right like about 100% of the time, rounding up, of course. Um, <laughs> but I don't talk about him too much because he breaks one of my number one rules, which is don't be boring. Um, he <laughs> is boring AF, though mind-blowing. So... If you're thinking, oh, this is a five-star review, I definitely got to pick up social systems. Uh, fair warning, it will make no sense and it will be extremely boring and it will take up a lot of your time. Yeah. Actually, there is one book that I can recommend that kind of, it's fun, is uh, Reality of the Mass Media. Have you, have you had a chance to crack that one? No, it's on my reading list. This guy, I mean, the guy wrote so much. Like, he, his output was just unbelievable he wrote something like 50 or 60 books in his lifetime like and, and then like hundreds of articles on top of that the guy was a machine but before so no. we get there <laughs> yeah exactly you, you remember when they found his like office after he died and it was just like one billion index cards with all of his notes on it oh that's another thing that might be fun to get to too his uh his zettelkasten system as i've actually tried to sort of reproduce it a little bit but that's 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 getting ahead of things <laughs> yeah let's not get ahead uh because we haven't talked about it in so long uh you might want to refresh on those episodes and this is volume one so we don't have to even attempt to cover uh lumen today i think the the other boys have another interview uh, next week, so we might just we might just uh, split off and do our own thing for a little bit. Um, so this book by Francesca is it Ferrando? Ferrando, yep. What are we? What's our intro to posthumanism when we are looking at that book? Right. So Francesco Ferrando, um, who's a professor of philosophy, assistant prof at uh, NYU, 
Um, she's got she's got her own version called Philosophical Posthumanism, which is the title of the book that she wants to sort of elaborate and articulate like philosophically. But it it, it sort of gives you this really helpful overview of posthumanism and all the sorts of varieties and what things posthumanism is like and how it's different from the other things. So it's it's just a great book to get like this nice overview. She begins with a set of premises on which posthumanism is based. And and I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this story, you know, the the 21st century is this time where, you know, technological and biotech and cybernetics is becoming this really major force the development of technology and is challenging the um concept of the human in all sorts of ways and and so posthumanism is just one of these movements that takes this challenge very seriously and it's it's you know it takes place on another on a number of levels right so if you're familiar with the philo- philosophical distinctions right we talk about epistemology and ontology for example right so so posthumanism takes on the human on both of those levels so as a kind of center of knowledge epistemology right think you know kant and it takes on the human ontologically which is you know what we've been talking about do humans exist lumen doesn't think so they don't exist um and it it takes it on on both of those levels um and the human does exist on the level of semiotics, of course, which is why we have it as a word. The question is whether it's a good or a bad concept, and the goodness or badness of a concept is based on whether it describes what it purports to or not. And and other levels too, the level of praxis as well. So the book just opens up with that sort of um, these premises and then goes into making the big conceptual distinctions. So there's a lot there's a lot even to talk about probably even before we get to those sorts of things what kinds of posthumanism are out there and what is and is not posthumanism. Is it different from transhumanism? Is it different from anti-humanism? Yes and no. All those sorts of things. And just to give maybe the listener something to hang their hat on cuz you've probably never unless you're in in the lit never heard a claim like there are no such things as humans because your answer to that is probably I walk around I see them I'm listening to a human right now I know their names how can you say there's no human um, and maybe maybe one different way of seeing that is uh, it, it has a model right so when we're talking about the human it's not like your dad and your mom it's the concept of the human because you go around your life um, in a day doing a whole bunch of different stuff. You might go grocery shopping. You might get on the subway. You might uh, have a conversation with your, your roommate or partner. And you're doing all these different things. And what Lumen says about the system or the human being is like we use this as a glue to unify all of these disparate events that don't actually go together. But because we're the one experiencing it, we're going to use human as a glue to say that one agent, one individual, is the cause of all these different actions that happens. And then we go further up from that, society is made up of these individual humans that do all these different things. 
But if we take a, a post-human exa example of why this would be incorrect is to unify like the act of tapping your credit card on a machine, that's a very different type of action than having a conversation with somebody. And we assume, you know, I'm a consumer, I buy, and then I go have a conversation. There's no disjunct there. But what Lumen's gonna say is don't look at the person as the center of both of these events. Look at the systems that they are a part of. So we're focusing, we're shifting, decentering if you want. We're focusing on the whole system. So with credit card, it would be an entire financial system. You know, the the credit card after you, after you pay, then whatever your 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 Mastercard or Visa goes wherever it goes. Obviously, we don't know shit about that. But whatever happens, that's its own thing, and it only views the human, what we call human in quotes now. It only views the human as this like input source. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care about the rest of your life. It doesn't care about the conversations that you have. And Lumen's gonna go on to say with posthumanism, you could do this for any communication that you undertake in the world. There's nothing there that unifies the acts of communication. All there is, is acts of communication. So we're shifting here, another thing you've probably heard me say very often, we're shifting here from an, an ontology, as you mentioned, of things to an ontology where there are no things, there are only events. And there are patterns of events, there are systems of events, but there's never like one fixed thing that we can put at the center of the whole system. And that's kind of what the post and post-humanism means. We're not gonna have one individual agentic at the at the center of every event that constitutes what we'd call in everyday terms our our, our normal life. Sorry, I went on for a bit. No, that's good. And just to reinforce that, yeah, in, in any given day, right, you interact with a number of different systems. As we mentioned, if you go to the store and go shopping, right, you know, financial systems, but you also engage with transportation systems, or if you drove to the store, right, you engage with the, with infrastructure and and vehicles and, and or if you're walking you're you're engaging with this sort of infrastructure of the sidewalks and 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 you also seem to you know take on all these different roles in a day right you're a yeah. student you're a, a son or a daughter or or you're or you don't fit into either of those sorts of categories you and, and we and in any any case in all those roles you think if you if you peel back each one student teacher child, parent, whatever, once you pull off all the roles, you might assume that there's going to be something left there called the human, <laughs> with yeah. some kind of being, some kind of entity called the human. And of course, this is very important for liberalism because this sort of human with all the these sort of accidents and roles peeled off of it, the human is what is where rights are supposed to be, right? Human rights. And of course, we know that human rights and this discourse immediately ran into problems of excluding women right so of course was it was it wollstonecraft wrote like the declaration of the rights of of women as as a kind of countertext to the declaration of the rights of man but in any case that just goes to show you that there that there really is a kind of problem at the heart of what we're talking about when we're talking about the human who does it include 
who does it exclude? Is it is a human like an onion <laughs> with all these different layers? <laughs> or I guess I guess that's a bad analogy because an onion is just layers. <laughs> yeah. But but like is is a human like a fruit? <laughs> the, the human is the seed, and all the layers and things outside of it are like the the roles and accidents and different things we take on the inessential parts. And that, but again, we assume that at the bottom of all that, there's something left over called the human. But I mean, you could think about when you, and then when you look at the human, you're like, oh, wow, actually there's a lot more going on there. There's all kinds of biological and psychological, conscious and unconscious, speech related and nonverbal related things going on. Like there's all these sorts of different things, right? And again, at, through all this, you know, the libs, right? They'll, they'll kind of try to tell you that there, there is still this, this human and it's this universal thing that we all share this humanness and it's there underneath all of our layers. But I mean, I guess the onion example is kind of good because it's like, maybe it is just an onion, all these rolls, right? You just, you peel it all off and there's just nothing left. It's all layers. They're all just arranged differently and relatively to each other. And there's nothing really, that's a, that would be a kind of, uh, when we mentioned ontology, that'd be kind of an ontology of relations, right? Relations are what are at bottom, not, not, things, not elements, not atoms, but just relations, right? Which are a little more insubstantial. They're not, they're not material or you can't grab them or see them or look at them, but they're there. Humans are not like cakes. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. An, I, yeah. I an to, ogre. <laughs> no. What about cake? Everybody loves cake. Okay. We're like <laughs> layer cakes, right? <laughs> um. So the, to, I guess, elaborate on that a little bit, but what, what, I keep bringing up Lumen and we're not talking about Lumen, but he's just, he's just my go-to for this. So I apologize for that. Uh, Lumen thinks that the human being is a quasi religious concept. That's like a hangover of, of Christianity. Um, and as we were talking yesterday, it's not just Christianity because the Romans and, and Greeks had a concept of the human, but it was specifically a legal term it wasn't a term to just describe you know the way we would use it to describe everyone's a human everyone deserves rights yeah i can go over that um but i just preface it by saying um the type of argument that i'm going to go into here is is probably you know you think of it as an etymological argument but it's really something similar to say listeners if you're familiar with heidegger and his way of arguing things, right? Especially in, in the question concerning technology, right? He goes back and he looks at these terms, um, uh, techne, episteme, and poesis. He brings them back to their origins. We can do the sort of same thing with humans, right? So, you know, anthropos, right? Anthropos is the Greek origin of the term human, you'd say. Anthropos had was, you know, a free property owning, non-slave male Greek citizen who lives in a city, Athens or Thebes or whatever, and is able to vote on issues as a democracy. And importantly, in order to be an anthropos, you can't be Persian, you can't be Egyptian, you can't be Celtic or, or uh, Etruscan or whatever there was around during the classical era. You can't be any of those things. You have to be Greek. It's a very exclusive concept. And if I'm remembering correctly, um, when when Roman times came around, especially like the Hellenic era, 
we really had this this influence from Cicero and this idea of of humanitas, right? And and they got this concept, the uh, sort of the the Hellenists who really loved Greek culture, right, in Rome. Uh, not like Cato the Elder, who was more of a conservative. He thought the the Hellenic influence was going to corrupt the Roman mind. But the um, these sort of progressives were picking up on Greek ideas and translated Anthropos as as humanitas, right, which was famously rediscovered in the um, Renaissance era as well. And our education system is also built on this. They got their concept of the human needs to be a kind of educated, virtuous, you know, rational being, right? And didn't the didn't the Romans actually extend citizenship to the Greeks because they're like they're they're enough like us? Yeah, I think so because the Roman Empire was very smart about you know what how to how to with, withhold whether or not to withhold or extend you know humanityness <laughs> to people right so their conquered peoples they would be able to extend a kind of roman citizenship to them because it was a strategy for keeping them from rebelling against the roman empire because it was so big by that time right this came with rights. Being a Roman citizen gave you rights of passage. I think you couldn't be crucified since it's Good Friday today. You couldn't be crucified if you were a, a citizen. Have you heard that, or am I? Just yeah, there were still certain exclusions from this, even this sort of Panhellenic humanism that came out of the sort of Ciceronian tradition. Yeah, there were big exclusions. I think I remember that because uh, Paul, Paul the Apostle. He had a Greek parent. One of his parents was Greek. So he had citizenship and he wasn't allowed to be crucified. Like, uh, I think Peter was crucified upside down in the location of the Vatican. Anyway, so what we're getting, this might sound like tedious, but we're, the origin of the human, it doesn't mean that there is no human yet. Like, we haven't proven that. We haven't given a convincing argument, I don't think, but we're starting to. Uh, but the, the, the first versions of of human before uh, Christianity, at least, is that it's a legal designation. And a designation, as we know from our, our friend, Mr. Derrida, any designation has an excluded other side to it. So we are excluding, you know, uh, Jews from the Roman Empire. We are excluding women. We are excluding people who don't own land. And giving rights based on you know parentage, and this is what's basically called anthropos. You know, fast forwarding probably to the most relevant part of the story, the the modern concept of human was was born in the Enlightenment, right? As as Foucault is very famous for saying in his book um, The Order of Things, is when that's the human is a recent concept, and it's. Probably on its way out, he says. Yeah, that's the, the very last, very last page of Order of Things. Doesn't he say it's like a a, a face in the sand or something? And then the waves come and wash it away. <laughs> a very, very controversial sort of statement, but one of the founding sort of moments. Now that we now that we're talking about posthumanism, you point to that as one of the big founding moments. Um, not to say it's been interpreted in the same way uh, by everybody, but um, yeah, that's one of the important kinds of statements, and and it, and it helps with this sort of genealogical or archaeological approach to excavate where human came from, rather than taking it as a uh, as a as a 
taking it for granted, basically, as a sort of common sense concept, which, you know, is fine. You walk around, you do your life, you, you, common sense gets you by. You don't need a concept of the human to interact with your fellows any more than like a dog needs a concept of dog to interact with other dogs. But, but it's, uh, it, it's quite important when it comes to organizing society and political life, right? Because we need formal definitions. We need concepts. We need things from to derive things from, right? So, you know, legal systems, political systems, economic systems. We think that the human is all important for these things. But as we've been saying with Lumen, actually, actually they're not. And they all sort of have their own version of what we are when we do interact with them. You know, like I was saying before, to the sidewalk, we're pedestrians. To the transportation systems, we're just, you know, users of the transportation system. And it has its own sort of version of us or even today in big data, right? We're just a collection of data points. We're not really humans. You might assume that there's some kind of human behind it all, but really it's, it, we're just data points to that system because it's irrelevant. Our, our, our fleshy and angst ridden existence is completely irrelevant to those systems of marketing and, and data brokerage. Yeah. And this is a, a kind of a technical version of, of what Althusser talks about, like to to the criminal or to the justice system. I mean, we call it criminal or justice, probably a misnomer. But uh, to that system, you are either a law-abiding citizen or a lawbreaker, someone who has broken the law. Like, there's no in between. You're only one of those two things. It doesn't care about the rest of your life. Uh, to the legal system, you are irrelevant until you actually have to interact with it and show up in court. So it observes you, but it doesn't observe you all the time. And kind of what Lumen is trying to get away from is this sense that there's a view from nowhere, uh, which humanism needs. There's a view from nowhere that it will see you at all times as the thing that is doing all the other things. But if we look at systems theory, you are observed only while you're interacting, and then you might as well disappear from the face of the earth. Uh, we we call this system versus environment. The system's interested in you while you're interacting with it, and then after that, you don't exist. And systems theory is, is I mean, we, we covered this, again, I'll, I'll just say again, we covered this um, in a couple episodes about two years ago. So it'd be cool to go back and look at those because this isn't an exhaust post-humanism. It's a, I, for me, it's it's an important part. It's what I'm interested in because I'm I'm sort of Persian into Persian semiotics, and I'm very interested in cybernetics and systems theory. And I found that post-humanism is is an interesting place to sort of position those interests because it is like I said, very broad. You can do it in different ways. You can be a techno-feminist like Donna Haraway or Karen Barad. There's two big names in the field, for example. And there's all sorts of different approaches that run through the, all of this. But I I like to give the sort of story, if I can indulge myself a little further, of, um, again, the sort of, uh, I guess, chinks in the armor of the human concept um, came slowly but surely over the years. Um, one of the major blows was probably, you know, Galileo. Um, you know, w everybody assumed that the sort of Earth was the center of the universe, and by extension, the human was the center of the universe, and everything was organized around us in spheres, right? That old Ptolemaic model, um, the geocentric model, and and 
and you know Galileo blew everyone's nips off with his his uh, his Copernican model, and he got in a lot of trouble for it. Uh, but well, that was one of the first blows, right? The human is not the center of the universe. Actually, the sun is, and actually, the sun isn't. It's just one star among many. And I would say a few more blows to that. This concept of the human came about with um, with uh, first with Darwin and the idea that humans are not, you know well, we're not created by God or not the crowning achievement of creation. We basically develop through random mutation and selection, right? We're random products of the evolutionary process, which we share with all living beings. And, you know, this is the, this was a very important point too, because some people act like, you know, evolution just stopped at human beings. Like, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you can really think that if you if you're into darwinism. Unfortunately, Darwin is is sort of a um a black sheep when you take a humanities uh education. Darwin's not not a huge focus, but I think that's changing. But then to keep the story uh rolling, um uh, Marx probably was the next sort of blow to that, right? Uh, that that we have a kind of political unconscious. We, we sort of have a, a conditioning based on our position in society. Our worldviews are influenced by things that are outside of our control. We don't choose the world we're born into or the class we're born into, but we certainly look at the world through that lens once we have it. Uh, so kind of socio-political unconscious, you might say, just like Darwin's kind of biological unconscious, I could call it. <laughs> and another one with Freud, right? We're not rational and in control of ourselves. We're not present to ourselves perfectly. There's a part of us that's unconscious. There's a part of us that's, you know, outside of our control and 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 really, really influences what we do say and think. And... Again, the, the story could be extended even further, probably with Saussure and the linguistic turn. We have this sort of linguistic preconditioning. I could even bring up this sort of Sapir-Whorf hypothesis where language determines your reality more so than anything else. So there's all these different little you know, chinks in the armor of the human concepts because as we know, humans are rational and we speak and we have self-control and 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 all these things are just not true <laughs> they're just not and and with lumen it goes even further right we're just we we're just caught up in systems and these systems don't recognize us in any kind of holistic way they recognize whatever parts of us are relevant to them and even for us we don't really know you know like we don't really know what's going on in our guts <laughs> what's your liver doing right now ask it how it's doing i don't think you can all these sorts of things right are going on in i guess theory <laughs> but i li i like to think of those unconsciouses unconsciousnesses anyway the biological the political the linguistic and the psychological all those different sorts of areas that have troubled the human, the sovereignty and autonomy and rationality of the concept of the human, which is what all this is supposed to be based on. And you might ask, like, so what? We still know what humans are, right? Well, okay, <laughs> that's that's fine. But I mean, you got to think the changing concept of the human being, the idea that humans may not be around in another million years because we've evolved in different directions, all these sorts of things, right? They must have some impact 
They must change the way we think or should organize society, politics, law. And maybe the way we do it right now is sufficient, but in the interest of being thorough and thinking these th these things through and having a forward-looking kind of stance, <laughs> right? These problems then sort of appear problematic, a, a very very problematic for for how we conduct ourselves. I don't know. Global warming, the end. <laughs> yeah, in the end, this is not. It's going to have no effect on your life, whether you think this way or do not think this way. Um, at least for for me, it kind of describes the subjects of history are not individual people subjects. They are these massive systems. Like we like to throw around the word capitalism a lot. Capitalism is not one system. It's a bunch of them. But you can't overthrow it in a day for this reason, because it's pursuing its own interest. It's using a lot of energy from a lot of, you know, people. I'm referring to them again, but in this case, it's just their labor or just their uh, credit cards or whatever. And you can't just, you know, change the world in a day because it is made up of these systems. So I want to ask you, I have the I have the ghost of Victor here, Eric. If you're saying all this, the human doesn't matter. Rights are a, are a fabrication that are built on this quasi-religious, outdated concept. What is the political implication of this? Should you be concerned about the political Im Im implication? Um, or what, how does that change your view of like, should people have a right to free speech, a right to property, a right to vote? Do any of these things uh, still hold or do we just accept them as useful fictions? Yeah, I guess I guess the answer to that, I mean, which is not super clear in my mind already, but I guess the answer to that would be to then talk about well, what is a post-human? What is what is this post-human that post-humanism is talking about? And what are the primary features of post-humanism? Because I think it does. If you, if you define politics in like a very broad sense of the ways that we sort of live and act together and organize our social lives, right? If you, if you think about politics in this broad way, then you gotta you gotta think well like what does politics consist of? Does it consist of just human beings vying for power? Okay, fine. But what if if human beings are not what we think they were? If if politics involves things like other systems like couplings with economic systems and technologies, right? Politics was fundamentally changed, for instance, by the emergence of the televisions and the radios and the internets and things like that, right? Like if, you, if you're just excluding all of those concepts and you just think about politics consists of human beings, then like what kind of politics are you doing, right? Like already people like Marshall McLuhan pointed out the ways that that even changes in technologies can have radical impacts on all of our other sorts of ways of, of being as, as human beings, right? Technologies, I mean, he's still a bit of a humanist when he says this, but technology extends our nervous system into a worldwide network, right? The global village, the internet, it, our nervous systems are all 
I mean, almost Lumen, uh, Lumen might not say this, but McLuhan would. They're almost literally, we're all connected to each other by extensions of our nervous systems today. Now, if you think politics shouldn't countenance that, if you want to go into political science or do political theory and, and ignore those sorts of developments, I mean, okay, best of luck to you. But I think you'll be missing some really important and obvious issues, right? So- you know, you can always just keep saying, well, I'm still a humanist, but okay, now I'm just going to bring technology into the picture. I'm still a humanist, but now I'm just going to look at the role that money plays because money seems more important to politics than people anyway. <laughs> like you can, okay, you can keep sort of extending the boundaries of what you consider in your humanist frame over and over again. But instead of doing that, let's just take a post-humanist perspective and see if it just works a bit better. <laughs> yeah, so there's not really a a politics that is necessarily connected to this kind of thinking. It's more of a a shift in model. So if you think of all of all of society as just a group of individuals, that's one possible model. And if you take this different approach, uh, your your sense of it changes. The look of it changes. And there is a specific term for this uh, in systems theory, which is called observation. Um, so you're basically, when we're talking like this, we're reproducing the entire system into a conversation. So it becomes represented. And this is going to get, I think, a little bit galaxy-brained a little bit. But if you take the human out, the human's not the model, then we get into some weird statements. Statements like, people do not change their physique the system changes physiques. People do not change tastes. The system changes tastes. And this is not giving all agency like your life is completely determined or anything like that. But you don't really act outside of a system even while you're shitting on one that you don't like. So our, on our internet politics, uh, getting, names on, getting names for ourselves like I'm a Marxist, I am a whatever ist, I'm a liberal. We're all liberals because the system itself is liberal. You don't have a choice to just not be the thing that you have to act out uh, because you do act them out. Like whether or not you want them in this country, you have the right to free speech. You don't get to decide whether or not that's true. It's just, a, it's a function of the system that you cannot be tried for, you know, saying, most things, most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and being a radical, politically, if you want, that's part of the system too. Like the system needs radicals. And then it shifts. You are, you are inputting your desires into the system. You might change something. You might not. You basically need to have the biggest crew to be able to change anything. And that's just something very obvious about politics. Uh, but we make these divisions all the time. Like what we're doing here, we're we're alternative media. Um, we're not mainstream media, but we are mainstream media. You use exactly the same process to access this podcast that you would to access what's a lib podcast, uh, Pod Save America, or something like that. We use exactly the same method. There is no inside outside. It's all the same circle. One way to say there is only really liberals and conservatives in our world is to just look at, you know, 
American political system, for example, right? It only recognizes two positions. It recognizes Democrat or Republican, and that's it, right? There's the sort of maybe more socialist wing of the Democrats. There's the more lunatic wing of the Republican Party. And there's a lot of overlap between them as well, but it basically recognizes two positions. And, in, and sorry in, to interrupt, if you're not one of those two positions, meaning you don't vote, which is your basically your only political, you're only a political subject when you vote. If you don't vote, you don't exist. You're not in the political system. So at least in, in at least in America, I'm not too sure, but at least in America, if you want to be a socialist, well, the political system doesn't recognize your socialism, right? So you can't, you're not a socialist. There's no way for you to be a socialist. You can't vote as a socialist. So what, what can you do? Okay, you can go to Twitter and you can be a socialist there. Twitter certainly recognizes socialists and anarchists and it recognizes the whole spectrum of positions. But I mean, in the end, what is Twitter? It's a data mining operation right so you, again you're just you're just a data point then that collects all these data points what a socialists like social socialists like i don't know do they like what, what kind of ice cream do socialists like that's part of the profile what kind of what kind of sex toys do socialists like do they like the do they like the the little <laughs> anal thing on their dildos or they just like straight dildo i don't know like all those little little points right they the, you're just a bunch of data points so twitter recognizes you but where does that get you they like the whip for sure <laughs> yeah they like the cat of nine tails they like the submission <laughs> <laughs> Me, I prefer to go to the swamp and pick out those. And uh, never mind. I, and in Canada, you know, okay, our political system does recognize you a little bit because you can vote NDP. You can vote New Democrat. They're kind of socialist, although they've kind of moved away from being a labor organization party. Uh, or you can vote Green, right? There's okay, you can do that in the states too, right? The Green Party has become extremely important all around the world. And then in European politics, okay, they they recognize a slightly larger. Um, spectrum of positions, but they're, I, I'd say even in that case, they're basically organized along the liberal conservative spectrum, even though you sort of have the, the, the fringe parties on both sides. So that's what we mean when we say everyone's a lib. I do want to addend to that claim that you can be a socialist outside of electoral politics. Like if you join a socialist organization, then you are recognized, of course, by that organization as a socialist. But we're just speaking in, in terms of electoral politics, which is where not 100% of, of power to power in the political system lies, but almost almost all of it. Yeah, yeah, of course. I shouldn't I, I shouldn't say that because we obviously we don't want to boil politics down to voting once every four years, but there is a certain way in which that's our political system that we work with. And that saying that, you know, politics isn't just voting every once every four years is, is more of an aspirational than a descriptive statement anyway. Uh, of course, you can join the DSA. You can you can be you can join that party and be kind of like a socialist there, too. Right. But they aren't recognized by the political system, although they may be soon with all these sort of <laughs> unionization pushes. And if they position themselves as the labor party that in America that Canada doesn't have, then that may change and you, the socialism may be born in America. But for now, it's not because <laughs> it's not recognized. True. And this may sound like uh, the struggle for recognition in the sense of Hegel's phenomenology or uh, Kojev. And that that's kind of true. 
But there's a, a word for this here, and it's irritation. So with a big system with lots of moving parts, like electoral politics, you cannot irritate a system by yourself. But because by yourself, you're just an individual input. You are one of millions, and you are observed or you are not observed if you don't participate. And there are some other esoteric claims like this outside of electoral politics that, for example, the, the system determines your physique and what your body looks like, not your free will alone. So you have some decisions to make about your body, but there are a lot of decisions about your body that you don't make. So if you are healthy or not healthy, that's a relative claim depending on what kind of medical system your society has. If you are fat or fit, that's a relative claim depending on kind of what is encouraged, depending on how the system observes, uh, how precise the monitoring systems are, whether or not healthy food is accessible, and whether the market, uh, maybe the job market, for example, encourages sedentary lifestyles or not. So for example, a system, a society in which you're expected to be a soldier, the bodies of those subjects are going to look very different depending on what military technologies you are expected to be proficient with. And that's kind of an obvious claim, but it takes the center that like your body is up to you it decenters that and says, you know, in some ways your body is up to you, but not completely. I, I should preface this by saying that I've I've gotten this example from um, some Lumen scholars. Um, Hans Georg Müller is one of them, so it's not my example, but yeah, um, the, yeah. For instance, you know, you think about about. I gave this example the other day where where swamps are really good for some reason at preserving bodies and there's this big discovery of 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 these English longbowmen and they noticed their physique was a lot different, right? Um I don't I don't even need to go to that, you know. There's the old sort of myth that the ancient Amazons used to um used to cut off one of their one of their uh, breasts so that they could fire bows better. Now now, in a, in a sort of liberal framework, you'd be like, okay, well, that's an individual decision that somebody made to become a soldier, and they they knew the risks and they knew what they had to do. Okay, but from a social systems theory kind of perspective, that it's the system that's shaping, you know, the 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 war machine, <laughs> the system of 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 imperialist violence was what shaped you know, the body of the English longbowman or the body of the Amazonian warrior, right? The the system shapes your body, right? And I mean, I, I there's so many examples you could think of too. I I always think of I always think of the Industrial Revolution as reducing people to, you know, doing a single motion over and over and over again. And then I walk into the gym and I look at all these machines and look at people <laughs> yeah. doing single movements <laughs> along a very prescribed <laughs> arc <laughs> over and over and over again. And that's a sort of, again, the, the, the gyms are a kind of system that shape bodies, like just, as, just as the pharmaceutical system is a kind of system that shapes our chemical constitutions. And you don't make these decisions. Other people, these decisions are made in a system that you're not sort of a part of. But you're, in a way, being in a social system 
means there's a certain homogeneity to what is recognized as an act in that system. Yeah. So well, you could, becoming a subscriber to a gym is going to shape your body in certain ways, whether or not you <laughs> go to the gym or complain that you hate the gym. And you could you could say, again, as a, a, the humanist would say, you know, this person decided that they wanted to be healthy, so then they went out and purchased their gym membership, and this was all, like, up to them to do. But why could someone 400 years ago not do that? There was no system for it. There was no, like, I guess we could call it a cult of health. There wasn't a celebrity culture and an Instagram that rewarded that kind of behavior. So you didn't need to go to the gym. You also didn't need to go to the gym because you didn't live a sedentary life if you were most people. So yeah. the, the, whole, those... the whole gym health system, the, the food, you could talk about microplastics. Like you didn't choose to put microplastics into your body. That wasn't, that wasn't a decision that you made to murder your sperm. But if they dig up our bodies... They exhume us and like in in the future and try to figure out how did this society live? Why were they fucking eating plastic all the time? These these morons. But again, you dig up the the remnants, whether it's I don't know longbowmen. You dig up these ancient civilizations that they, they didn't get there and they don't look like they do because of a whole bunch of individual choices, or at least uh, uh, human choices. They got there because of systems choices the the english army needed longbowmen for whatever fucking reason uh, to to because they could shoot arrows far enough to penetrate the armor of the french horses or whatever it is like there's a systematic reason that these guys have completely jacked right arms yeah yeah their sort of skeletal structure was altered and their musculature was all changed around and yeah, it was a systemic thing. And and even if you, you know, you go to the gym and you want to achieve this sort of body type or this sort of level, this ideal health type or whatever, you think like, where did those ideals come from, right? You, Those were in, inculcated in you from an early age through media today is the sort of universal way we get ideas. But you can even think of ancient Greece, right? Like those those Olympian bodies, right? Those were that was a that was another sort of social framework that instilled a certain ideal in people. And of course, if you were a Greek male, you could participate in the Olympic Games. And there's a certain reason for that too. And they, they didn't choose it. That's that's just how their society was sort of set up. And you become a part of that. You're born into it. There's not much you can do about it. Uh, you can try to self-critique and, and try to escape some kind of ideological framework, but in, that's not sort of social systems theories approach to that you don't yeah sometimes you know individual agency gets lost in this sort of perspective but yeah yeah i just i do want to push back on what we're saying here uh from what i think people might be hearing we're saying that on the one hand there is a various objection that like no look i actually have the free choice to go to the gym or not go to the gym which yeah that's true so the system does not determine which choices are made, but systems do determine the available choices that can be made and create channels and incentives, especially for different types of decisions. So to argue that the ultimate core of your decision-making is somewhere inside you, somewhere inside your humanity, that's wrong. 
It neither begins nor ends with you. You are channeled whether or not you participate. So if you decide to go hard in the gym and get super cut, then you'll probably be seen as some model of fitness and be seen as self-disciplined. You're advertising that lifestyle, you could say. But quote-unquote healthy lifestyle is not something that you came up with. You're buying into a selection process that now also makes you, I don't know, become a, a consumer of protein shakes, you know? Um, same thing with healthy or unhealthy. That's a distinction. You're not observed as being a healthy person or an unhealthy person until you go to your doctor or trainer and then they start giving you feedback about what you are. And then in a in hundred years when your body is exhumed, they could observe your particular musculature or whatever pharmaceutical chemicals are in your hair and skin because your doctor told you to take them. And then they'll decide what you are in one sense, but to do, ascribe your musculature and the chemicals in your body your diet, these are only, in a very limited sense, freely made choices. So, to sum this up, I guess, if you dig up an English longbowman and do an autopsy, um, and then if you were to be dug up in the future, and if there was an autopsy done on your corpse, the differences between you and the English longbowman are not explained by individual decisions. They are explained by systematic differences based on the interests of those different societies and the different interests of those social systems. So the model is a shift of where agency is located. It's not in your person nearly as much as it is in the systems and their incentives and kind of what they channel you and push you to do in a society. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it sort of, in a way that you're right, yeah, it's not determinist. It kind of cuts through that freedom determinism kind of binary, right? Because the system, the structures that we deal with do proscribe a kind of range of choices. And we don't really have control over what our choices are going to be. We just have to choose. Or we can choose not to choose, which I don't know. I don't know if there's room for that in, in Lumen's books. <laughs> to cho there choosing isn't. Not like to if, choose. if you choose to not go to the gym, then you're choosing to be unhealthy. You know, if we buy that, if we buy that logic, you are either a healthy person or an unhealthy person. Um, and you yeah. don't, you one, not making a choice is a choice. In that sense. Yeah, I mean, like maybe your doctor tells you that your knees are bad and you should start going to the gym or maybe your friends got you into following some influencer on Instagram who made you feel bad about the way you looked and like, I mean, is that, and then again, is that your choice? You bringing that energy then to a gym and then you, and then you couple with some other system. Is that really your choice? I mean, the freedom determinism binary is kind of irrelevant, and that's that's part of the point of of systems social systems theory, anyways, to cut across these binaries, freedom and determinism, the whole and the parts, this and that, right? Identity and difference. There's there's sorts of binaries we tend to have in 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 other frameworks, anyway. This is this is sociology too, so it's not it's a scientific approach to the study of society. So naturally, you're abstracting yourself from your personal everyday existence, and you're trying to, you know, offer a 
what Lumen would call a super theory, right? It's a, it's it's not a, it it is universal in that it has pretensions to be universal and explain what is common to all social systems, no matter what type. Um, and then you can go look at specific, more specific social systems, concrete systems like the the banking system in the United States or something like that. But first you have to look at, okay, what's common to all social systems? And then even more general, just systems in general, right? And then you get into things like, you know, modeling systems using category or set theory as well, which would be an interesting application. Yeah. So that, but that's a little bit too far. Yeah. We, we, we've talked about all that before also. So if you go back to whenever systems theory was, uh, we talked about that, but the, the post human part of this is that there are no humans in society, only like certain events. And the reason that humanism seems so irrefutable is because each of us has a personal individual memory that links your entire day together. You know, like I, I woke up, I ate breakfast, I got onto the subway, I went shopping, I bought my groceries, I came home, sat on my computer for four hours and then went to bed. So you have this memory that links all these things together. So that's your internal experience of yourself. However, you don't have that same experience of anyone else except for you. So what humanism does, like the reason it is so successful is because everyone, every human does have that memory link that glues all those different events together. Um, and then we look at, the, and this is part of why we don't think of uh, like dogs as persons, because we've never heard a dog link all of the events in a day together. But if you talk about it from the perspective of the system, all what happened in a day is someone bought something at the store. Someone boarded the, the subway and then got off of the subway. They don't care that you think that you, there's this contiguous person at the bottom of all of it. So what we call, it's called second order observation, um, if you're a Lumanian person, but getting out of that universalized sense that because I have memories that link me together, that must mean that every person also has those. And, you know, they probably do, but it becomes kind of a misrecognition in what Lumen says. Like, if we are actually looking at the material here, you wouldn't see an ultimate unity. You don't see an ultimate glue, just like we don't see an ultimate unity in dogs. We say dogs uh, run on instinct rather than like free will, but we give ourselves free will because we have special access to our own system that links our life together into a whole. And kind of what Lumen's saying is if you look at this from the outside, there's not actually a whole. That's a fantasy that you're carrying over and that's why he calls it a quasi-religious unity. And this breaks down all the time. For example, my, my panic attack that we started this with, that broke down. I didn't choose that. I don't know why my my body was making these decisions that affected my, my self-narrative, my story of myself that I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this reading today, so I'm prepared for the podcast. I didn't choose that. 
But I ignore that and say, okay, that, 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 that was not me. That was something different. That was my body. And it's true that it was my body and a different system. But we have to question this universalizing sense that because we experience ourselves as a unity through memory, that everything is like that, or that that's the basis of a political system. Sorry, that was a, that was longer than I thought it would be. No, I can I can I can definitely relate to that. And like you know, I'm I have this I have this disability or disorder that the psychological and the pharmaceutical systems recognize as attention deficit disorder (ADD). And it's not like I'm I'm a human being plus ADD or something like that, or I'm less than human when when someone has a kind of disability like that. But it's something that's beyond my control. I don't know. Is ADD or I don't know what it is. I don't know how it works, but I'm told that if I take something like Ritalin, it'll correct the chemical imbalances that are causing this issue and I can be fully human once more. No, I can be, I can, I can cope with that sort of strategy. But again, I can, I, this, this framework of, of the post human is broader than the human, right? The post human tries to include everything that the human excludes right like there's no there's no the human minus this that this that the human is just what it is so so yeah lumen will still talk about humans for example but from the system perspective so one of his radical statements that we like is uh is humans can't communicate right that's a very strange sort of counterintuitive claim am i not communicating with pills and in the future, our listeners, or I guess, are you communicating with me in the past by listening to me? Well, according to Lumen, no, not, not really, because we have to distinguish what pills was just saying about our personal memory. That's your, that's your consciousness, your psychic system, which is a very different thing from the social system and a very different thing again from the biological system, right? Those systems are interconnected in a way they they interpenetrate one another they are coupled but they do not communicate with one another so i i i right now this this system that we are a part of this this sort of internet podcasting system is constituted by communications if those communications stop then this whole system would just cease to exist it's a process it's a processual kind of framework as well right so yeah we have to again the, the humans can't communicate is is a, a provocative statement just meant to draw attention to that fact the difference between the consciousness system or the psychic system and the communication system right or and the, i want the social system i'd like to elaborate on that if i can um if if i could so you're hearing my voice you're hearing eric's voice you're thinking you're probably reflecting on on what we're saying but if I were able to actually communicate with your mind, I would be able to think your thoughts. But because I cannot think your thoughts, I can you know, send these out. I'm recording it into a file onto my computer, which I will upload to the internet. You'll download it and you'll be able to hear me and you're in your earbuds or whatever. But there's nothing direct that gets to your mind from language. Language has a, has a line, there's a line where language ends and then your thinking begins, your personal narrative that we're disrupting right now. So it's not, we, I remember I took like an intro to communications course in like undergrad 
And they have these stupid fucking diagrams. It's like person A, communication, person B, re sender, receiver, or, or whatever it is. But the lumen point here is unless I can think your thoughts, which I can't, then we're talking about two closed systems that are closed to each other. And they do bump into each other. Like I am getting into your mind through your earbuds right now. But the way that you receive that message is not direct. It's a completely different uh, medium, we could say. Your thoughts and my words are completely separate media. But also my thoughts to my words are a completely separate media. My, th my thoughts themselves cannot create vibrations in the air. So there's a translation happening there between two separate things. Yeah, that's the, the old syst uh, information theory perspective of senders and receivers. It isn't going to help us here because Lumen kind of dismisses that. But yeah, yeah, I have a certain information that I want to convey. And I select certain utterances because in order to convey that information... And I and I communicate, right? And you you hear this communication. You also have language. You also have a sort of meaning system in your mind, and you can try to divine the message that I was trying to send to you. I don't know if you got it or not, and you don't know if if what what you made of what I said is what I really meant. You're never going to know that. Yeah. But you may respond, listeners, right? You may like this podcast you may even comment on the comment section and thus you now have selected some information of your own and chosen an utterance for it and then we look at it and we judge whether or not you got our meaning <laughs> right and we say oh this person misunderstood us or oh this person gets us yeah man and so and then we can then further respond to your communications and then you could see whether you got what we got what you were saying like that's more how it works rather than you know i don't beam an idea directly into your brain and then you beam it back that's that's a little more that's a little more like i mean that's sci-fi obviously but that's <laughs> more what the information theory model actually wants to say in a certain way right you i'm a sender you're a receiver and there's a reduction of probability in, in the message. I mean, okay, that works for maybe machines, but not for people. Yeah, so these aspects, uh, they're called structural couplings. These aspects become the focus. Like where where does a person interact with the legal system? What, what part of them is involved and brought up into that when the legal system de decides uh, you're a criminal? Um, those are the kinds of points that are of, of interest. So really, nothing in the world changes by being a systems theorist, except your perspective. Um, so we're all looking at the same data, and humanism offers one explanation for it, and post-humanism offers a different explanation on it. And there's like at least four kinds of uh, of, of post-humanism, and they're going to focus on on different things. Uh, some are going to focus on the animality of human beings, like there's no distinction between uh, human and animal. We are animals, or they'll focus on like there's no there's no such thing as a naked human because the the human is always imbricated. I think is the academic term for it. They're imbricated with technology. There's no human outside of its techniques. Uh, writing for memory, for example. All right, so I think uh, that's a, a pretty good 
a pretty good way to wrap it up. Um, this is, it's not, I wouldn't say it's effectual, but it is quite a radical way to think. I, like Lumen himself says, I'm the, I, you mentioned the three disruptions and he says that he's the fourth one of those. Uh, you mentioned, uh, what is it, Copernicus or Galileo, Darwin. And he says, like, this is this is the disruption that really knocks us off of the high horse in which we're still the center of the world. And it's just because the vision in which we're the center of the world is wrong. And that's kind of why I identify with this a lot more than with humanism, because I just think it's it's more correct. It's more correct that I'm a series of events fictionally woven together then, you know, the world is up to me. The world is what I make of it. I am important and special, and what I want can actually happen out there in the world. That doesn't seem to be the case to me. And maybe you're dispositionally different, and then you might not like this so much. But here it is. It's your theoretical option. We could call it a critical theory because it's critical of one aspect of looking at society, and it is ultimately a sociology without humans in it. That's right. And I mean, take these sorts of things with a grain of salt and do your own thinking about them. But, you know, systems theory does attempt to be, I mean, it's a toolbox for description. It doesn't attempt to be normative. It doesn't want to make moral judgments. It doesn't want to prescribe what should or shouldn't be done. And and in, in a way, Lumen is seeing a lot of modern theory as being very normative and we've of course discussed this on the podcast before as a normativity and it's it's a really annoying thing that keeps coming back up especially when we're talking about liberals um but the the attempt here is to be non-normative or maybe not normative in the sense of moral yeah moral because sorting systems, good from bad systems are normative that's why they work that's why how they reproduce themselves in what's called autopoiesis by being normative so I don't I don't know who who the crypto normativists are, but we are announcing that we are normativists, but saying that systems are normative, not that you know morality is normative. Yeah, from that perspective, yeah, I fully embrace normativity. Right, every every system is self regulating. Every system is you know as we say with autopoiesis, every system is self creating. It creates itself at every moment. Right, because like I said. Those it's a relational ontology, so it's composed of relations and events, not atoms. Yeah, events, actions, interactions. Every system recognizes a different stock or basic sort of, let's say, event slash process that has to keep on being iterated and iterated and iterated and composed like you know if 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 everyone suddenly stopped communicating for a day imagine what would happen to the internet you remember those old like blackouts that yeah. happened a little while ago when when like facebook and everything else was protesting these sorts of new laws that were coming through they were attempting to uh they were attempting to irritate the shit out of the political system by making this big point, <laughs> but at the same time, they endangered their own existence because they they ceased to reproduce communication during that time. But it's it's a, so it's a non-normative kind of framework when you're thinking of it in a moral sense. But in another sense, it is normative because every system has a regulatory kind of feature, right? You know, like 
the freaking thermostat in my house regulates the temperature. It's kind of, it's so it's normative in its own way. <laughs> if it, if the temperature goes away from the setting that I set it at, that's bad. <laughs> not morally bad. I'm not going to hell for it. Much less is my thermostat going to go to hell, but it it's just not normative in the in the way you think of it. Overthrow the thermostat hegemony. Exactly. Just put a hammer right through that fucker. Yeah. Down with homeostasis. I like I like chaos. <laughs> Why don't we uh wrap it there? I hope if if this episode is successful, it means that we have successfully irritated your psychological system from the outside. We're not in there, but we can irritate it from the outside. And when you irritate something in systems theory, that's what brings about change. So really, that's when right. I say ideas doesn't don't matter, this is kind of what I mean by it. It's kind of the subtext. It's the the activity is what makes the difference, not the belief not the and not even the speech act. I mean, those do make those are communications. But you know, the action is what makes a difference. If you want to overthrow the system, find the weak points in it and uh, irritate them. I hope this piques some interest anyway, because I would love to talk more about it. So just to be clear, we 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 approached posthumanism and we used quite a bit of like lumen and systems theory to talk about it, but. In, fu- in the future, if 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 you if you want to hear more, we're gonna talk more about other features of posthumanism and possibly go a little deeper into systems theory and cybernetics as well, because we could very well bring up you know Derrida and Foucault and sort of so-called postmodernist theorists because they provide a lot of material for posthumanist thinking. And actually, Lumen was a big fan of Derrida's, and he actually saw himself as 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 continuing the deconstructivist project second second order observation is for lumen a kind of almost an uh, another word for deconstruction so it's uh in, 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 at, at the very least second order observation second order systems theory is constituted by a deconstruction of its central term and its central term is system Yep, and we need to create a system here. So what we're going to do, there's no really real way to uh, comment on podcasts, uh, audio podcasts. So I would encourage you, because we don't we don't really know what is piquing your interest here. Uh, we've said, we've tried to like throw at or shoot the provocative statements from Lumen at you just because they are so provocative. Like there are no humans in society. That sounds like an insane thing to say. So what we need from you, go to the YouTube channel for this podcast if you have questions and you will decide through feedback the continuation of this system and which way it goes. Because I I don't know, I'm not in your brain thinking your thoughts. Sorry, I'm not in your psychological system thinking your thoughts. Your brain is part of your neurological system. So I'm I'm not thinking your thoughts. So if you do have questions, feedback, say, I wanna hear more about that thing that you brought up we are going to do uh, a, f- a feedback episode. And of course, that goes for the patrons and the patron who are listening to this as well. We'll give you we'll give you priority hearing about that. Because we need money to continue the system also. We cannot podcast if we do not have a 
house to rent and he- and heat to turn on. And buy our dildos. I, I need a new one. Mine's mine's in tatters. So, sorry, you can cut that out. <laughs> but I didn't know that was a thing, but I'm sure many of the sickos out there are going to know. So anyway, give us your comments. Feedback is what creates systems. So let's auto poeticize this bitch. And uh, we will talk to you for volume two. All right. Communication over. Over. Pause. It's not over until I press... Uh, stop on my software.